Good morning, everybody. Good morning. So God lines up all the men and women in the world, lines them up in front of them, and says for all the married uh, for the, all the married couples says whichever man is actually the head of the household, the leader of the household, please stand to my right. Everybody starts looking around. Nobody really moves, and he says, the, the guys that lead the household, please stand to my right. One person, one guy moves to the right, and everybody, all the other guys are looking at the guy, looking at their wives, looking at the guy, and uh, God goes, so how did you do it? These guys want to know, how did you do it? And he goes, I didn't do anything. My wife told me to stand here. <laughs> so good morning. This is Red Hill. <laughs> Today we're going to be in Acts 20. That has nothing to do with the sermon, by the way. <laughs> we're in Acts 20 today. We're uh, going through the whole book of Acts. Um, so we're going to be in Acts 20. So Kath, Levi, and Yaku are away for different reasons, but they're away. And when friends or families go away, we always want to know how their trip was. Right? So if they go to one location, we want to know how it was. But the reality is, and now with Facebook and all that stuff, we can follow the stories of what had happened for their whole trip, the people they met, the things they did, the little stops they found, the little cool cafe spots that they found, stuff like that. And that's kind of what we're going to be seeing through Acts 20 today. Paul makes a lot of stops, and we're going to see what he's up to. So we'll read Acts 20, starting from verse 1. After the uproar ceased, Paul sent for the disciples, and after encouraging them, he said farewell and departed for Macedonia. When he had gone through those regions and had given them much encouragement, he came to Greece. There he spent three months, and when a plot was made against him by the Jews, as he was about to set sail for Syria, he decided to return through Macedonia. So Potter the Barian, son of Pyrrhus accompanied him, and the Thessalonians. Aristarchus and Secondus, and Gaius of Derbe, and Timothy, and the Asians, Tychicus and Trophimus. Those are tough names. These went on ahead and were waiting for us at Troas. But we sailed away from Philippi after the days of unleavened bread, and in five days we came to them at Troas, where we stayed for seven days. On the first day of the week, when we were gathered together to break bread, Paul talked with them, intending to depart on the next day, and he prolonged his speech until midnight. There were many lamps in the upper room where, he were, where we were gathered, and a young man named Eutychus, sitting at the window, sank into a deep sleep as Paul talked still longer. And be, being overcome by sleep, he fell down from the third story and was taken up dead. But Paul went down and bent over him, and taking him in his arms, said, Don't be alarmed, for his life is in him. And when Paul had gone up and had broken bread and eaten, he conversed with them a long while until daybreak, and so departed. And they took the youth away alive and were not a little comforted, were greatly comforted. But going ahead to the ship, we set sail for Assos, intending to take Paul aboard there, for so he had arranged, intending him to go by land. And when he met us at Assos, Assos we took him on board and went to Mytilene. And sailing from, sailing from there... We came the following day opposite Chios. The next day we touched at Samos, and the day after that we went to Miletus. For Paul had decided to sail past Ephesus, so that he might not have to spend time in Asia. For he was hastening to be at Jerusalem, if possible, on the day of Pentecost. Now from Miletus he sent to Ephesus and called the elders of the church to come to him. 
And when they came to him, he said to them, You yourselves know how I lived among you the whole time from the first day that I set foot in Asia, serving the Lord with all humility and with tears and with trials that happened to me through the plots of the Jews, how I did not shrink from declaring to you anything that was profitable and teaching you in public and from house to house, testifying both to the Jews and to Greeks of repentance towards God and of faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. And now behold... I am going to Jerusalem constrained by the Spirit, not knowing what will happen to me there, except that the Holy Spirit testifies to me in every city that imprisonment and afflictions await me. But I do not account my life of any value nor as precious to myself, if only I may finish my course and the ministry that I receive from the Lord Jesus to testify to the gospel of the grace of God. And now, behold... I know, not, I know that none of you among whom I have gone about proclaiming the kingdom will see my face again. Therefore I testify to you this day that I am innocent of the blood of all, for I did not shrink from declaring to you the whole counsel of God. Pay careful attention to yourselves and to the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to care for the church of God, which he obtained with his own blood. I know that after my departure... Fierce wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. And from among your own selves will arise men speaking twisted things to draw away the disciples after them. Therefore be alert, remembering that for three years I did not cease night or day to admonish everyone with tears. And now I commend you to God and to the word of his grace, which is able to build you up and to give you the inheritance among all those who are sanctified. I coveted no one's silver or gold or apparel, You yourselves know that these hands ministered to my necessities and to those who were with me. In all things I have shown you that by working hard in this way, we must help the weak and remember the words of the Lord Jesus, how he himself said, It is more blessed to give than to receive. And when he had said these things, he knelt down and prayed with them all. And there was much weeping on the part of all. They embraced Paul and kissed him, being sorrowful most of all because of the word he had spoken that they would not see his face again. And they accompanied him to the ship. So remember that the chapter starts off after the ride. There was a ride in Ephesus where Paul, a good day for Paul is getting out of a riot with only insults thrown at him. That was a good day for him. So he's leaving the city, and before leaving that city, um, he's encouraging the church there, the disciples there. He's telling them, stay steadfast in everything that you're about to go through. The trials, the sufferings, the the insults, the, the, maybe the beatings that you're, you're going to take in this city. Stay steadfast. Don't stand firm in the faith of God and in, in the faith of what Jesus has done for your life. He encourages them and goes to Macedonia. And there he continues on to Greece. So you guys are looking at... Uh, Ephesus is over here and he's taking a, like an arc around into Greece, the bottom of Greece over here, where he spends three winter months. Paul left Ephesus around June in the summer and spends in Macedonia the summer and fall months and then goes to Greece and spends the three winter months there. And in this time, this like half a year, close to a year, in that time he writes very important letters that we read in our New Testament. For example, in uh, Ephesus he wrote 1 Corinthians, according to the scholars, 2 Corinthians from Macedonia and Galatians as well, and Romans from Corinth. The reason I bring that up is because in these letters that Paul wrote, we actually get a hint of what he's been doing as he's traveling back, revisiting all of these churches. 
and he's been gathering a collection, a gift for the church in Jerusalem. The church in Jerusalem is struggling. The saints there are struggling financially, and he's going to bring them back a gift, a collection from all of the churches. So we know this in 1 Corinthians chapter 16, verses 1 to 8. Paul says, Now concerning the collection for the saints, as I directed the churches of Galatia, so you also are to do. On the first day of every week, like we do today, each of you is to put something aside and store it up, as he may prosper, so that there will be no collecting when I come. He's in a rush to get to Jerusalem. He doesn't want to do this when he gets there. He just wants to grab their collection and keep moving. And when I arrive, I will send those whom you accredit by letter to carry your gift to Jerusalem. If it seems advisable that that I should go also, they will accompany me. I will visit you after passing through Macedonia. Remember, he's writing this from Ephesus before he leaves. For I intend to pass through Macedonia, and perhaps I will stay with you or even spend the winter, so that you may help me on my journey wherever I go. For I do not want to see you now just in passing. I hope to spend time with you if the Lord permits. The reason why he stays the three months in the winter. In, from Corinth, so now he's in Greece, he writes to the Romans, saying, At present, however, I am going to Jerusalem. His plan is to go to Rome. But he's telling them he's bringing aid to the saints in Jerusalem. For Macedonia and Achaia have been pleased to make some contribution for the poor among the saints at Jerusalem. For they were pleased to do it, and indeed they owe it to them. For if the Gentiles have come to share in the spiritual blessings, they ought also to be of service to them, the people in Jerusalem, in material blessings. When therefore I have completed this and have delivered to them what has been collected, I will leave for Spain by way of you. Paul, at the, almost at the end of his life, is still looking to see what God can continue to do, a new thing that God is doing. The whole book of Acts is leading us to Rome, and Paul here is still saying, and after Rome, I'm going to Spain. I'm not going to be done. This is literally going to go everywhere, the, the message of God. Now, have you guys ever seen the, the banks, uh, when the truck rolls up to the banks with the money? Usually, there's not just one guy in those trucks. Those things are heavily armored. One guy sits in the truck, three guys hop out, they all take the money to the bank, they do the exchange and come back, and it's high alert, everybody's on guard, and this is what Paul, this is the scene that Paul is, is taking us through. Every time he's making a stop, he's got this group of guys, these representatives of the church, because in those days, they're taking a lot of money, and there was no armored truck. It was horse and chariot and a bunch of guys and prayer that nothing would happen to them. Okay? So this is the scene that we're, we're seeing through the book of Acts in chapter 20. But it's also what Paul is doing is crucial for the church. It's an example of unity for the church. It's not just the church in Jerusalem and the church in Ephesus and the church in Philippi and the church in Rome and the church in Greece, different churches doing their own thing. Paul is uniting all of the churches by taking in this collection. I remember when I was in college, in university in, uh, in New York, we, were, we played soccer, and we were about to get into a very like, crucial time of our season. And our coach one day decided, we're not going to have practice, we're just going to have a meeting. We're going to sit down and talk to each other for a bit. And the one question he asked was, look at everyone in, in your team, look at everyone in the room, who would you pick to go to war with you? He didn't talk about lineups. He didn't talk about plays. He didn't talk about who was going to do what, who was going to do what, what someone was not going to do. It was who would you be trusted with going to war? 
And the people that Paul is bringing along with him are trustworthy people of those churches that if something actually happened to the money, they would be able to be reliable to tell the church what actually happened. And on the positive side, when they actually made the, gave the, the gift, that collection, those, that sacrifice from all the churches, they will go back to their church and say, yes, the gift was handed over. Paul is not the shady dude. We didn't go into the black market and buy Porsches, okay? We gave the money to the church. So it, it, the point being is the unity of these churches that Paul has, has gone about planting, serving, forming, and pointing always back to Jerusalem because that's the city of, of the people of God that we look forward to. He's, he's telling them unity is, is, the, is the element that gives us success, that gives us fruitfulness, that keeps the faithfulness of the church. Everybody united under one head, under God. A story in the Bible that resembles this, I think, beautifully, if you remember, it's Nehemiah and Ezra. Nehemiah and Ezra are from the Old Testament, so the first half of your Bible, Old Testament. And they have been in exile in Babylon, meaning they've been in slavery in Babylon for about 70 years, and now they're allowed to go back. Ezra, being a priest, goes back to Jerusalem, like Paul is going back to Jerusalem, and Ezra decides to build the temple first. He teaches the religion back to the people. He gives the word of God back to the people, the commandments of God. Thirteen years later, we have Nehemiah coming along and says the temple has been built, but the walls, the walls need to be rebuilt. And, and Nehemiah grabs everyone, young and old, young and old, it doesn't matter your gender, it doesn't matter your class, your occupation, how much money you make, it didn't matter. Nehemiah grabbed everybody united to do this work. Every spot in the wall was taken up by someone. And in Ezra chapter 3, the people rejoiced because God was doing something new. Paul wants the people in Jerusalem to rejoice for what God is doing. Ezra chapter 3, verse 11, it says, And they sang responsively, praising and giving thanks to the Lord, for he is good, for his steadfast love endures forever toward Israel. Paul is proclaiming to the church in Israel, bringing this collection. God is good, his steadfast love is for the whole world, and look at what he has done through, through the gospel message. Think about recreating this place, this building. It didn't matter who you were, if you could hold a paintbrush, if you could hold... Uh, anything. You were needed, your gifts were needed because there was a new thing that God was doing in this place. Paul going back again, he's telling them, God is doing something new. The walls around that city of Jerusalem need to be broken down figuratively because God is expanding the walls of Jerusalem. He's expanding the city of God. He is an ever-increasing kingdom. The kingdom of God is ever-increasing. The Bible tells us that the gates of Hades will not prevail. So the darkness in the world, those gates will not stop the increase of God. And that's what Paul is going to proclaim to them. When, when Nehemiah set up the, the crews to build the wall, some were for security, some were for building, some were probably providing some water, hummus, bread, fruits to the people working the wall, but everyone had a part to play in it. Everybody was doing the work of God together. For example, I, uh, I brought this up the last time I was up here. The, 
the cathedral in Spain. The cathedral in Spain, the, the sacred family cathedral. When you were standing in the middle, there was these verandas on the second or third floor of this huge cathedral. And that's where the choir would sing. But in front of all of the benches of the choir, there was different notes. What are those called? Where are the music people? The tre the, the sorry? Treble clef. Different, different notes of the treble clefs. And I remember, actually, we were listening to the audio, and the audio person literally said that the, that the reason he did that was because we all have a note to play in the worship of God, in the work of God, in the, in the ministry of God to increase his kingdom. And it's the Holy Spirit. Paul, Paul is showing the church that the Holy Spirit has done so much after the church in Jerusalem. The church in Jerusalem exploded. Then the church in Samaria. Then the church in Judea. Then the church in Ephesus, Galatia, Macedonia, Greece, Rome. We're sitting here today because the Spirit of God has not stopped has not stopped. And it's from Acts chapter 2 that Peter proclaimed this. In the last days it shall be, God declares, that he will pour out his spirit on all flesh. Your sons and daughters shall prophesy and your young men shall see visions. Your old men shall dream dreams. The spirit of God has been poured out on all of us to do something in the unity of the body of Christ for the increase of his kingdom. And the amount of money, Luke never even tells us about the collection. Uh, there's some debate about that. Talk to me after if you're Bible geek stuff. He doesn't mention the collection, and he definitely doesn't mention, or Paul, the amount that they put in. And that's because the amount doesn't matter. Remember Jesus' words in Mark chapter 12, when he was sitting there in the temple watching how people brought money to, uh, towards the temple. He sat down opposite the treasury and watched the people putting money into the offering box. Many rich people put in large sums. And a poor widow came and put, into small, put in two small copper coins, which make a penny. And Jesus called his disciples to him and said to them, Truly I say to you, this poor widow has put in more than all those who are contributing to the offering box. For they all contributed out of their abundance. But she, out of her poverty, has put everything she had, all she had to live on. It doesn't matter how small we think our faith is at times. It doesn't matter how small you think your gift is. God has called you for a work, for a race for you to run for his glory. And that's what, that's what Paul is going to tell the Jerusalem church, and that's what God is telling us here today. And he's so intentional with it. What, what Paul is doing is so intentional. He tells us that he, he tells the church he's trying to rush back to Jerusalem, rush back to Jerusalem. And he's, he's doing that because he wants to get back to Jerusalem for the day of Pentecost. This was a time where the Jewish people from all around the world, the pilgrims, would go to Jerusalem to give their first fruits. It was a time of harvest, their first offerings, their temple tax. Paul is doing this to show the Jewish people, look at what God has done. It's not just about the Jewish people around the world. It's about the people of God all around the world bringing their first fruits to the church, to the temple at that point. And he's bringing the representatives from all of those churches. It's almost like the tribes of Israel, the new tribes of Israel going to Jerusalem. And for us today, this unity is a huge thing. It's a huge thing because we think it's, it's Red Hill and then uh, New Life Church and then Freedom Center. It's like we, it's all of these different separate entities and really we're all together as one. And that's the big picture that Paul's going to show them. But for us today in the small picture as a community, we are all united. And it's not just Jill united to Jesus. It's not 
Kylie, united to Jesus, or Jess, united to, it's all of us united together under the head of Christ. For example, if you are a pinky, I'm a pinky, okay? I am connected to the ring finger, to the middle finger, to the index finger. I got those all right, right? And the thumb. And then the pinky is connected to the wrist, to the whole body. Okay? We are all connected to each other. Okay? It's not just the pinky and the brain trying to rule the world. Nobody knows that show. Uh, the theme song is, brain, what are we going to do today, brain? And brain goes, pinky, we're going to do what we always do. We're going to try to take over the world. It's not just the pinky and Jesus trying to rule the world. We're all connected in this. If you don't believe me, let's talk about a body part that you haven't thought of in a long time. The pinky toe. When was the last time you thought of a pinky toe? Never. Hardly ever. Now, in the middle of the night, get up and stub that pinky toe. The whole world will revolve around that pinky toe. And as a matter of fact, the whole body will be asking for healing for the pinky toe. And that's a part that you probably never thought of in the last year. Right? We are all connected in this. Okay? Uh. <laughs> the brain <laughs> Jesus <laughs> so unity is what Paul is going back to show the church in Jerusalem so we pick the story up in Philippi so he's now going back around the reason being is because he sniffs out a rumor on his life again this is just a normal day in the life of Paul there's some pilgrims going back to Jerusalem they found out, find out that Paul to them is preaching heresy and he thinks they're probably going to kill him more importantly they're probably going to try and do something with the collection. So he sniffs that out and says, nope, we're going by land where this armored truck and chariot will be more safe. Okay? Um, Yes, so he goes by land all the way back up to Philippi. And that's where we pick the story up. Um, From Philippi, he goes from unleavened bread. Oh, yes. And then he goes, so he's back up in Philippi. He spends the days of unleavened bread there, which is a festival for the Jewish people where it was after Exodus, um, the Spirit of the Lord had passed over the city or the people of Israel in Egypt. They got saved, and they can get out of slavery. They ate unleavened bread as a sign of being in a rush, which Paul is in a rush to go to Jerusalem. Luke is amazing at how he does this. That was Bible geek stuff. Everybody's like, (laughs) okay. So he tells the people to go to Troas. Remember, Troas is a city where he got the vision to go to Macedonia. He's sending his crew there, and he's going by land, probably to mix up whoever's trying to catch him, or because he just wants to go by land and meet people on the way that he has served in the past. We don't really know. But we, we land in Troas. And this is where every person that has prepared a sermon can breathe a little bit, and hakuna matata, because Paul, he starts preaching and someone fell asleep. So if one of you falls asleep, I'm going to be okay, okay? So we're in this upper room um, in Troas where Paul is preaching and teaching for an extended, extended period of time. Now, do you know when we're texting each other? So if I text Kayla, if I text uh, O-N, the letters O-N, my text message app thing will say, on my way, and I don't even have to text that. You guys know what I'm talking about? Yes? Luke has been doing the same thing. Luke has been, he gave us, in, in, this, in this chapter, he's giving us three signs that something is going to happen like it's happened in the past. So because I text Kayla on my way home, babe, every time I'm coming home from work, 
the text message knows, okay, this is what O-N is about to say, and sends it. Luke has been doing the same thing with saying, breaking of bread, upper room, and unleavened bread. In Luke chapter 22, Jesus tells his friends to go ahead of him to prepare the meal of unleavened bread, or unleavened bread. He sends them to an upper room where there will be breaking of bread. Why that is so important is because Jesus is on his way to Jerusalem where he's about to come to suffering, humiliation, death on a cross. Luke is trying to bring out those same emotions for his readers that Paul is united to Christ. And the same things that have happened in in Jesus' life is about to happen to Paul when he goes to Jerusalem. Jesus was the gift sent by God to the world ended up in Jerusalem. Paul is sending a gift to Jerusalem and is about to encounter a lot of suffering and trials. Our lives need to resemble Christ. We are the image bearers of God. At some point in our life, if we continue with the things of God, our life will resemble Jesus and the world will see his love. And that's why the story of young Eutychus falling asleep is a powerful, beautiful story that we need to remind ourselves with. It's the grand story of the Bible amidst everything that the world tries to do and push on us and tell us that this is the way, this is the truth, this is the life, this is what you need to be living like. All of that and the persecution that comes to the people of God. This story in the middle of it all is telling us there's hope, there's joy, there's eternal life to be lived. There's a video online this uh, uh, two weeks ago, about a, a week or two ago, that there's a Lakers fan. Who's a NBA? Nope. Okay. Lakers is a big team in the NBA, and there's this, this guy in the front row seats, court side, for two straight games has fallen asleep <laughs> in the middle of the game. And I'm talking like head on someone else's shoulder, and he mouth open, half snoring. And the fans and like some analysts are saying that man should be banned. People pay lots of money to try and get that seat, and this guy's just snoring it away, okay? And interestingly enough, if you were to fall asleep in the Jewish time with a rabbi teaching, the rabbi would uh, excommunicate you for about 30 days. (laughs) But Eutychus' name actually means lucky and fortunate, so that's not going to happen to him. But he does fall, okay? He does fall, and it's a scary fall because we're told that... um, he, he dies. Okay? He dies. And again, this story is powerful for us to hear. We can literally read this story, and if we think about the emotions that Paul is about to go through, we can read a story like this and say, Death, where is your sting? The power of sin, where is your hold on my life? The past that, uh, that I've lived, where is the hold of that in my life? If God can resurrect Jesus from the dead, if God resurrects Eutychus from the dead, if God heals the lame, heals the blind, gives us faith to believe in something that's not of this world, where is your sting? And just like Paul tells the people to be comforted because there's still life in Eutychus, God wants us to know there is still life. Rise up because it's not over. Your life is not over. Luke tells us that Paul bent over him and and grabbed him, hugged him, covered him with the love of God. Psalm 91, verses 1 to 2. He who dwells in the shelter of the Most High will... 
abide in the shadow of the Almighty. I will say to the Lord, my refuge and my fortress, my God in whom I trust. And then in verse 14 and 16, God responds to the psalmist saying, because he holds fast to me in love, I will deliver him, I will protect him. Because he knows my name, when he calls to me, I will answer him. I will be with him in trouble, I will rescue him and honor him. With long life, I will satisfy him. And show him my salvation. So Paul, through faith in Jesus, Eutychus is resurrected. Everybody's praising and rejoicing. And he takes them upstairs for the third thing, the breaking of bread. Paul symbolizes to the crowd what has just happened with the breaking of bread. He points them always to Jesus, to believe in Jesus. And next we see, what's the cruise line, the Norwegian cruise line? We see Paul's cruise line of all the cities that he stops at, okay? He's on a cargo ship. He's not like on his little yacht that he he bought. He has to stop wherever the, the ship stops to exchange cargo and wait and then keep going. So this is why there's so many stops in Paul. And we end up in Miletus, Miletus. And it's about 50 kilometers south of Ephesus. And Paul calls the elders from the church to come to him. And you may be wondering... Why didn't he just go to Ephesus? There was a port in Ephesus where he could have stopped. Why didn't he just go there? He just got out of a riot, so he's probably not going to go back there if he wants to go to Jerusalem. And on top of it, imagine going back to your hometown. He spent almost three years there. Imagine you going back to a hometown and just visiting one person. I don't know where you come from, but if I went to Cuba and only visited one person, there would be a lot of unhappy people. So he doesn't go to Ephesus for one of those two reasons. Okay? He calls the elders to him. And then this is very, very, very interesting and powerful because it's the only recorded speech that Luke gives us that Paul speaks to believers. Everything we've read of Paul so far, he's talking to non-believers or he's trying to convince the Jews of what God is doing. This is the one speech that Luke records that he speaks to a community of believers the elders from from the church in Ephesus. And it's like his last will, his testament, his last words. It's what everything that he's done, it's what he's all about and what he wants to hand over to the leaders in Ephesus and, by extension, the community. And Paul begins with a heart-to-heart, the heart-to-heart conversation with humility. He tells them, ever since I set foot in Asia, I humbly served the Lord, meaning I didn't come to serve the, the idea that I had in my mind, the idea of man, I didn't come to be flattered by men or give flattery to men. I came to humbly serve the Lord Jesus and the mission that he had for Paul's life. Humility isn't, isn't plain, like, humility isn't, uh, there's something that you can do, but we, I think I'm not gifted for it or I don't think I'm made for it, so I'm going to be humble and not do that because then the world will look at me and just say I'm a tryhard. Um, so I'm going to be humble and not do it. That's not humility. It's actually, I mean, if I think about my life, that's a bit of pride. I'm, not, I'm scared of failure. I'm scared of what people are actually going to say about me. Humility on the other side as well is not playing down the gifts that God has given you in it, to do something. That's not humility. Humility that Paul's talking about is trusting the power of God that he's called something out of us and trusting his power to actually follow through with it. 
whether we make mistakes, whether we fail along the way, it's trusting God and humbly serving what God has called us to do. Paul says at the end of his speech that he worked very hard with his hands. Um, and it's a humble task when God asks you to do something, and it's not just going to happen like that. It's humbling to know that God's calling you to do something, but there's still a part for you to play a hard work in the meantime to do it. And that's where we can trust God, and that's where we can humble ourselves and say, God, I need you. I know you've called something out of me. There's a desire in my heart that you've placed there, and I can trust you to continue forward in the process. And again, he's humbly doing it. He's not looking, he's not saying, look what I did with Eutychus. I raised up Eutychus. Look what I did with this guy. And look how many people came to me at this church and this church. Paul's not doing that whatsoever. Remember the words of Jesus in Luke chapter 22, verses 25 to 27. He says, Jesus said to them, the king of the Gentiles exercised lordship over them. And those in authority over them are called benefactors. But not so with you. To the disciples. Rather, let the greatest among you become as the youngest, and the leader as one who serves. For who is the greater, one who reclines at table or one who serves? Is it not the one who reclines at table? But I among you as the one I am among you as the one who serves. Jesus says, I am among you serving you, and I'm really the greatest in the whole world, but I am serving you. And that's what Paul is doing. He's not taking money for the churches for all of the teaching he's done through all the years. He's saying, everything I've done is humbly working hard with my hands to provide for me and to provide for the people that are with me. But the truth is, sometimes humility is going to be, it's going it's to reach a crossroads where we're humiliated. And Paul was humiliated tons of times in his, in his ministry. But like Jesus, in his humiliation, that's when Jesus' power in our lives is greatest. When we're following God, we may be humiliated. That's when Jesus rises up in us to bless the person that's throwing insults at us, to bless the person that's uh, spitting on us, to bless the person that's throwing elbows at us in a soccer game. That's when Jesus' work is more evident in our lives. You guys ever seen the, the baseball videos of, the, um, of the, the batter? Doesn't like a call. He spits on the umpire. Who would be able to actually bless the guy? <laughs> to bless the guy that just spit on you? And it's... it's it's hard to think of, but that's the type of humility that Paul has done. He's been beaten to death for preaching the word of God, left outside the city, and he gets up and wants to go back because of the love of God to bless those people once again. And it's humility at the end of the day. He tells the Ephesian church in chapter 2, For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing, it is the gift of God, not a result of work so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. God has prepared something for each of our lives, prepared something for us to walk in humbly, trusting him, and not to shrink back in the humiliation of man that I may be humiliated in this, so I'm not going to do it. For to trust God through the whole thing. Paul says that the suffering and the humiliation that he's about to reach in Jerusalem, that won't move him. Just like the greed of man and the selfishness of man will not move him to work hard with his hands, the suffering that he's going to face in Jerusalem doesn't move him from not going to Jerusalem. He, he literally tells the, the leaders, my life, there is nothing that balances out with the greatness and goodness of God. I do not account my life as precious to me. I want to continue in the work of God that he has for us. 
And I know the feeling in my life, there's many times where I'm feeling the constraint of the spirit that Paul talks about that some of us will even describe it as the, the stomach in your throat, your heart starts racing. God is asking you to do something. He's constraining your life for, for a second, for a minute to actually do something, to bless someone. And my first reaction is, nothing will come out of this. I'm only going to make a fool of myself. What am I really going to do for this person? But the thing is, someone did that for me. And that changed my life. The love of God that someone was able to think, even if I'm humiliated, I'm still going to do this because of the glory of God, for the goodness of God. And that's what we need to think about. Jesus was humiliated in front of the whole world. He's got scars to humbly show us. Look at how much I was willing to be humiliated for everyone sitting here and for the world that is going to hear his good news. And the reality is, again, that God meets us where we're at. That word to, to, to comfort someone meets them where they're at, but God does not leave us where we're at. He takes us by the hand and takes us forward into his mission, into the increasing kingdom. And there's no, for Paul, there is no other news or gospel that he's willing to die for. There's no other mission that he's willing to die for. The, the mission of God, the gospel of God, the good news of Jesus is the only thing he's willing to die for and live his life for. Our life is, is not worth keeping if it's going to keep us from living life with Jesus. The things of this world are not worth going after with our whole lives if it's going to turn us away from the gospel, from the Jesus that is our Lord and Savior of the whole world. All we're called to do, like, like Paul says to them, is be alert. Preach the whole gospel, the whole counsel of God, and be alert. Jesus in the garden, while he was about to be humiliated, while he knew he was about to face suffering, asked one thing of the disciples, stay awake and pray with me for a while. Be alert. Stay with me for a while. And Paul is saying the same thing to to the disciples. Stay awake. Be alert. Be alert because this race is going to bring you different things in someone's life that you can help. And if we're not alert, we're going to miss those opportunities to comfort someone, to gather people into the grace of God. So he preaches the whole counsel of God to them and he tells them in Ephesians as well to wear the whole armor of God. It's not just our belief, but it's our actions that speak volumes to people. Just like if I was going to war back in the in in the in the in the meeting with in New York with the soccer team, I would want my teammate to know exactly what we're going to go into. I'm not gonna tell my teammate, hey, this is gonna be butterflies, Sundays, and snacks. This is going to get tough. So I need you to know that, but I'm going to be here with you. Jesus is going to be here with you. And that's how we should live our lives when we tell our friends about Jesus. The whole counsel of God is God does save us. God does redeem us. His love is unconditional. But it's not an easy walk if we're honest with each other. In this world, it is never easy to be countercultural. And that's what Paul is saying to them. Preach the whole counsel of God. Wear the whole armor of God. And finally, he tells them it's more blessed to give than to receive. We are called to give love because we were first loved. We're called to give grace because we've been shown the greatest grace we could ever give. We've been stopped in our rebellion against God, in our hearts turned away from God, thinking about our own desires, thinking about our own dreams. 
God, through his grace and love, has stopped all of that and turned our eyes to something much greater than the world has to offer. So we can give love to people in that place and give grace to them. It's actually a saying of Jesus that has never been recorded in the Gospels. It's more blessed to give than to receive. That's never been recorded in any of the other Gospels. But remember, John said at the end of his Gospel, if we were to record everything Jesus did of note and said, the world could not contain the books. And this is why I believe that, because every single one of us has been given something from Jesus that the world could not contain the goodness that he's done in all of our lives and what he will continue to do through our lives. He's not done with our body. He's not done with this church, with the church of the world. And he's not done in our life and your life. The world groans for his glory. The world groans for us to preach the whole counsel of God, to wear the whole armor of God, and show the world grace and love in all, of, in all things. So let's, uh, let's pray. Father, I want to thank you for the example that Paul is to us through the book of Acts, the example that the disciples are, that Peter is. Thank you that Jesus in his suffering, Paul in his suffering, all they wanted to do was say yes to your spirit, to the leading of your spirit. Jesus' words were, Father, let your will be done, not mine. I pray that we would say yes to that, God to say yes to your will, to your plan, and to joyfully and humbly walk it out in this world, in our families, in our communities, at work, and in our cities. Amen.